Well, please remain standing and let me have you take your Bibles out. And I'm going to have you turn to Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. We are getting ready to embark on the verse-by-verse study of of another book. I'll let you know what book that is uh, perhaps next week. But um, in the time between the time we finished up our study of Romans and when we get started on that, we're looking at some other uh, topics in Scripture and other passages of Scripture. And this morning we're going to be looking at the topic of the church. And to get us sort of in the mindset for that, follow along as I read the last half of Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him Be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for uh, the church. We pray that as we spend a few moments uh, considering this great uh, institution and organism, uh, an organization that you have given to us, Lord, we pray that you would instruct us and we pray that you would through this give us uh, a greater love for your church Uh, for we ask it in Christ's name amen well you can be seated as I mentioned this morning we're going to be talking about that church uh, where Paul says at the end of this passage to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations There's a lot of reasons that we could choose to talk about the church. One is because the church is such a major topic in the scriptures. Uh, Another might be because there is, I think, a lot of wrong ideas out there today about the church. Wrong teachings, wrong understandings, whether formal or informal, practical. Uh, We can talk about the church because there have been divisions in the church throughout history. There have been divisions between uh, the Roman Catholic Church, the Protestant Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church. There have been divisions between Reformed Christianity and and the Arminian uh, branch of Christianity. There are even some differences between uh, what we might call Presbyterian and Reformed Churches, although those are very slight and, and not many. Uh, differences between denominations and dom- denominational churches and those who think the denominations are bad. There's also a lack of viewing the church as important today. 
And that comes in, in many different ways. Sometimes the, the lack of importance to the church comes even from the church itself. Uh, in, in Vatican II, that Roman Catholic uh, document, in describing the blessings of the new life, or having described the blessings of the new life, they then say this, that all this holds true not for Christians only, but also for all men of goodwill in whose hearts grace is active. For since Christ died for all, and since all men are in fact called to one and the same destiny, which is divine, we must hold that the Holy Spirit offers to all the possibility of being made partners in a way known to God in the Pascal uh, mystery. In that, the church really becomes unnecessary since it's given, uh, this grace is given to all men. We've had others in the church who have come out of the church and, and said that the church is apostate, that churches are to be abandoned. Uh, several years ago now, there was another movement, the emergent movement, that downplayed the whole idea of the church as an organization. In fact, one writer in summarizing that emergent view says that it despises the idea that the church is what takes place on Sunday morning. We also might think of the need to emphasize the church because of the, the rise of what we call parachurch organizations uh, that, that are not part of a particular church, but very often, uh, th well, that exist outside of the church. Uh, they very often siphon off energy, not to mention funds of actual churches, causing people's energy and, and giving to be divided. They don't see themselves as churches, but as adjunct to the church, but therefore they do as they see fit uh, with loose uh, oversight or very often no oversight or real accountability to a church. So there's a lot of reason that we could have interest in the church and, and being reminded of what the church is. What's the importance of it? What is the church's mission? What is its scope? What is its foundation? What is its government? How can you even tell what is a, a true church and not a true church? All of those are important questions and we'll seek to, to touch on several of those this morning. But we want to do two things this morning as we look very briefly at just a very small sliver of the, of the doctrine of the church, of the functioning of the church. We're going to look at two things. We're going to look at what the church is and what the church does. We'll start with what the church is. Something very basic. What, what is the church? What is the identity of the church? And again, even asking that question and seeking to answer it in, in one sermon is a fairly insurmountable task, so we will just focus on one particular thing. The basis for many of the problems relating to the church is that many people in the church are not acquainted with what the church is. To many today, the church is merely a kind of social institution. Uh, but the church isn't just a social institution. It is not primarily a social institution much less an American social institution. And the Bible teaches us about the church. It is, a very, to a very large degree, about the church. And it speaks of the church throughout its pages, not just in Acts chapter 2, not just from Acts chapter 2 on, 
but throughout the scriptures we hear about the church we read about the church God builds the church he speaks of the church he teaches about the church and this makes sense because the primary subject of the Bible is redemption through Jesus Christ in fact if we wanted to give the Bible a subtitle it might be something like the redemption of mankind through the person and the work of Jesus Christ God's Son and we find that the identification and the definition of those people who are thus redeemed is also a prevalent topic in the scriptures and when we speak of those people we are speaking of the church terms to describe the church are many and varied throughout scripture just a sampling the church is referred to as the body of Christ it's referred to particularly in its Old Testament manifestation as Abraham's offspring the assembly the bride of Christ the bride of God the building of God the children of God the chosen ones the chosen people the city of God the congregation the dwelling place of God the flock of God a holy nation holy ones holy people a holy priesthood God's field, God's household, the Israel of God, the kingdom of priests, Mount Zion, the planting of the Lord, the ransomed of the Lord, servants of God, sheep of God's pasture, and we could go on. And each one of those gets at a different facet of what the church is. And it would be very profitable for us to look at each and every one of those, plus more, but I want to draw your attention to one of them to the one I think that is, is the most basic and the most far-reaching in the understanding of the church. And to do so, we read that passage in Ephesians, but I want to turn your attention to another passage of Scripture, what one might call one of the early birthday celebrations of the church. And when I say that, many people's minds might go immediately to Acts 2. But turn with me not there, in fact, not to any New Testament passage, but a passage back in the book of Deuteronomy. So turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 29 this morning. And follow along as I read verses 10 through 15. Moses writes here, he says, You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today that he may establish you today as his people and that he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God and with whoever is not here with us today. This event that Moses describes here is 
a solemn birthday party of the church, a birthday gathering, a birthday remembrance. There's an old riddle that says, how many birthdays does the average person have? And the answer is one. And the rest are celebrations or remembrances of that birthday. And that's what this is. This is a celebration. This is a remembrance. This is a renewing of the covenant. And in this passage, there are several things that that I might draw, draw your attention to. The first is that this is a gathering that God has called. He has called these people together. And it is based also on the covenant that God entered into, he says, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, with these people that he has chosen and that he has called together. And in verse 13, Moses gives us the purpose. He says that it is for the purpose of establishing these people as his people. And that is what I want us to see. That is the most basic, I think the most important understanding of what the church is, is that the church is the people of God. The church is the people of God. It always has been. It always will be. We could go back to Genesis 15 and the covenant with Abraham. When that covenant was first given, the overarching covenant promise is that God has called a people to himself and that he has bound himself to them, that he has bound himself to us. And why is that so important? Well, this is the most basic understanding of the church, that we belong to God. We are his people. And that's true to Abraham, that was true in Moses' time, and it is true today. Whether we're talking Old Testament, New Testament. Because the Bible teaches that God has one people. In other words, the New Covenant people of God, the New Testament church, is not a completely separate entity from the Old Testament church. The new covenant people of God does not replace the old covenant people, but it grows out of the old covenant people. Paul talks about that in in Romans 11 and Ephesians 2. He talks about the fact that, especially in Romans 11, that God has grafted us into, us Gentiles, into the one tree. It doesn't say that he tore down the one tree and planted a new tree. It doesn't say that he left the one tree and planted another tree alongside of it. It says that he has grafted us into the one tree. In Ephesians 2, he talks about the fact that we have all been made, Jew and Gentile, have all been made into one man. Now, there are certainly some major differences between the church of the Old Testament and the church of the New Testament. In fact, as you go through from from the earliest time forward, you see that the pre-Mosaic church was really very family-centric. Uh, the, the time from Moses on, there's that national identity of the church. And, spe- and when Christ came and after that, the New Testament church is very uh, faith-centric, where all of those other things uh, are not, do not enter in so much to, to what we have, but it is those who have faith, who have the faith of Abraham, who are the sons of Abraham. In the New Testament, Paul, as I said, teaches us that we've been grafted into that one tree. 
In Ephesians 2 also Paul says that in the mystery of the new covenant that he himself is our peace who made both groups into one. And he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, you Gentiles, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of the household of God. There's another name for the church. But whether we're looking at the Old Testament church or the New Testament church, despite the differences that exist, they are one in essence. And that essence is that they are God's people. We are God's people. These people, God's people, are a people who, as we saw here in this Deuteronomy passage, are called by God, they are called out, and they are called together. And we, as the church in the New Testament, we are called out, and we are called together. That's essential to the church. We are called out. The the word for the church in the New Testament in the Greek is the word ekklesia, which literally means called out. Now, we have to be careful. We always have to be careful of of taking the pieces of a word, ek, uh, kaleo, which means called out. We have to be careful of just taking those two pieces of the word and saying, well, that's what the word means, because very often that's not the case. But here the evidence is that this is the correct meaning. And it's seen throughout the history of the church. That God calls his church out of other things. Abraham was called out of Ur. He was called out of his pagan backgrounds. His descendants were called out of Egypt. Out of slavery. Out of bondage. The Old Testament church was called out from the other nations. To be a peculiar people for God. And we in the New Testament churches, it's the same. The essence of the church is that we are called out. In our very salvation, we are called out of sin. We are called out of our bondage to sin. The church is a community that is called out of the world. We have been called out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's Son. And as the called out ones, we are told to continually come out from the world to be separate from it, to forsake our old nature, to forsake our old lifestyle. And so the church is that which is called out, those people that are called out by God. But we're not just called out, but we are called together. That word that I, that I mentioned, ecclesia, That is the the word that is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to translate a Hebrew word, kahal, which is a word that means the assembly, the coming together, the the ones called coming together, the people that are called are gathered together. At Mount Sinai, they were called together, they were constituted the church there in the wilderness. Here in Deuteronomy 29, and in many subsequent Places and times where the covenant was renewed, again, the people are gathered together. They are assembled together as God's people. In the New Testament, we are the assembly. We are the church. We are the ones who are called out and called together. Peter says that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that we may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness, and into his marvelous light. 
When you read in the book of Acts, you read about the church and you read these words that the church was very often gathered, that they came together, that they met together, that they were together. We come together every Lord's Day as the church. The the time of the week that we are most unlike the world. The time of the week where we are most separated from the world. Where we are separated physically as we come together as God's people, together. Because God calls us. At the beginning of our services, we always read, a call to worship. As we are reminded that it is God who calls us. Not only did he call us out, but he calls us together. That's the church. We are called together. So we, the church of Christ, are a people who are called. We are not our own. We are called by God. We are called by God's grace. We are gathered together to him. Gathered by Christ, the king of the church, through the truth of the gospel of grace. That is the the clarion call of the people of God, of the church, is the gospel. And as there is one gospel, we are reminded, of course, that there is one church. We talked about that when we, before we did our, our um, confession of faith. You know, though there are various denominations in this world with various emphases and, and doctrines, some of which are true, some of which are in error, the Bible is clear that in the view of God there is one true church. The church which, is, which he has called, which he has called out of sin, which he has called together in Christ. Paul again in Ephesians reminds us that there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. One church called out. One church called together. The church is also, one other thing we can mention here about the church, as I mentioned that the clarion call of the church is the gospel. It is by that that God through us calls others. We remember that the church is and is to be the pillar of the truth of the gospel. Because the church is the place The church is the only place where one can find the teachings that will bring salvation to those who hear it and obey it, to those who obey the call to come to Christ in faith. In fact, the Westminster Confession in chapter 25, speaking of the church, says out of which or outside of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Now, yes, God uses other means. He can use a track. He can use the the discussion between you and your friend or your neighbor. But it is ordinarily as people sit under the preaching of the gospel and as the church ministers to those people that people hear the gospel and that God uses that to bring them to faith. And this teaching, the gospel, is central to the church. I'm sure everybody here would agree that without the gospel there is no church. Now, no one 
No denomination, no, no church has the corner on salvation. And no one church has everything right. Every church has blind spots. Every, every church has weak places in its doctrine. In fact, our, our confession speaks of that. It says that the true church uh, in various places may be more or less pure depending on how purely the doctrine of the gospel is taught, how strongly it is embraced, how well the, the ordinances are administered and the public worship is performed more or less purely in them. And it says that even the purest church under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. And so no one, no church, no denomination can make the claim, though some do, that they are the one true church. Not even ours. Now, we have to be careful. That doesn't mean that there is no true church in the world. God always leaves himself a witness. He has called the church together Christ himself said that he is building the church based on the confession of Christ. Now we also have to remember on the other side that that does not mean that every church that calls itself a church, no matter how far they may stray from the teaching of the Bible, uh, is part of the true church. We sometimes throw the word church around in our discussions too easily. Sometimes we search for a better term to use, but sometimes you'll hear people talk about the Mormon church or the Roman Catholic church or the Unitarian church. When those groups, because of what they affirm and what they deny, because they reject the teaching of the scripture, they are religious organizations, but none of them deserve to be called the church. One of the things that came out of the the Protestant Reformation and the, and the documents that came out of that was a, a considered and agreed upon understanding that really there are three main things that, that constitute a true church, three signs that you can look at to see whether you're in a true church or a false church. The first one, of course, is the right preaching of the gospel. To that, they added the right administration of the sacraments and the right exercise of church discipline. Those are the things you can look at. And even those second two go back to the first. That the primary way to recognize a church as a true church is does it it preach and teach the pure gospel from the scripture? Does it, does it preach Christ and him crucified and faith in Christ as the only way to be right before God? In order for a church, a group, to be rightly recognized as a church, it absolutely must preach and teach that apostolic gospel. Again, when we, when we proclaimed our, our profession of faith today, we said that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That means they must teach what the apostles taught about Christ and about how one can be saved. Remember that in Matthew 16, I mentioned this a moment ago, Peter said to Jesus, you are the Christ, 
That is the divine Messiah, the promised one who was to come. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus made the confession of the confessing Peter a rock of foundation in the church. And Jesus said that he will build his church despite the enemy's attempts to destroy it. And Peter later taught that the foundation of the church is the teaching of the New Testament apostles and prophets. Their teaching with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone of that foundation. That's the way it was. That's the way it is. The church is founded and grounded on that apostolic teaching. The teaching that you read in your Bible in the New Testament. And any group that departs from that teaching cannot legitimately claim the name church. No matter how big they may be, no matter how full their chairs or pews or whatever they may have may be, no matter how much they may speak highly of themselves as a church, if they do not have that teaching, they're not a church. Remember Paul's statement? I'm sure you do. To the Galatian church, at the very opening of his letter to the Galatians, He said to the church there, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He says, not that there is another one. His point there is is if it's a different gospel, it's not the gospel. It's not like there are a bunch of gospels, a bunch of legitimate gospels around. He says, you're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who would trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Then he goes on and says, but even if we, Paul says we, um, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary, he says, to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let him be condemned. And when he says there, speaks of a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, he means the apostles. If anybody comes along and preaches something to you, presents something to you that's different from what you see in the epistles, the gospel of the New Testament, you're to reject it. In fact, he goes so far as to say, let them be eternally condemned, the ones who would bring it. In 1 Timothy Timothy 3.15, Paul wrote that the church is the church of the living God and the pillar and support of the truth. And that is what the church is. And if a group or denomination is to function as a church, it must be absolutely unbending on the truth of the gospel, on salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and the necessity of faith, and repentance, and, and the demand for holiness. That message won't necessarily fill churches, but it's what God calls us to do. So those are just two aspects of the church. It is the called out and called together people of God. Those in it are called out, they are called together through the preaching and the teaching of the gospel. It consists of those throughout the world and throughout time who name the name of Christ and in true faith call on him and worship God. It is created, it is formed, it is regulated by the Word of God, and therefore it is evaluated by the Word of God. 
And entrance into that church is through faith in Jesus Christ as a result of his sovereign work in saving such people and bringing them into that covenantal relationship with him. One people and one way of entering in. And again, just a small scratch of the surface of what the church is, but an essential one. And based on that, we come to look at the second thing, and that is what the church does. What do we do as the church? As those who are called out and called together by the gospel to the gospel. What is the purpose of the church? How does it function? Well, the purpose of the church is to worship and to minister. The word ministry means service. And so the church is to serve. And the church serves really in three directions. The first direction that the church serves is upward. That is, the church serves God. That is, the church worships God. The church is a body of worshipers. Remember, Jesus mentioned that when he spoke to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. The church, as it gathers together, as the church gathers together for worship, that is the ultimate purpose for the church as it is for all things. Our chief end is to glorify God. People ask, why am I here? What's the meaning of life? Well, the Bible says that the meaning of life is to bring glory to God. The purpose of the church is to exalt the name of Jesus Christ, to humble ourselves before him, to magnify him, not to magnify ourselves, not to draw attention to ourselves, not to indulge our flesh. The church worships. The church church ministers toward God. We worship as we come together. But we don't worship in this building as if it were a temple. The church used to do that. It used to have a tabernacle. It used to have a temple. But Jesus said something extraordinary one day while he was sitting with that woman, that Samaritan woman at the well. Who had come, that woman who had come to draw water. He said to her, An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And he was contrasting there the belief of, of the Jews and of the Samaritans that there was a particular place. The Jews said in Jerusalem. The Samaritans said in that place, in that mountain, that that is where you have to come to worship. Jesus, Jesus says, A time is coming and now is when that doesn't matter. When the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. He said God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. See it's not that we don't have a temple now. It's just that the temple that we worship in is the true temple. We worship in and through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12 uh, gives us that truth so gloriously. He says that you have not come to what may be touched. You Christians have not come to a physical place. He says, 
a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them for they cannot endure the order that was given if a beast if even a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned indeed so terrifying was the sight that Moses said i tremble with fear so he's saying you don't come to that kind of a place you don't come to a physical place where you have to worship he says but you have come to mount zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We don't have to try to to bring heaven down to earth Because through our union with Christ, we worship in the heavenly places. We worship with the saints in heaven. We worship with the angels in heaven when we worship together. When the church gathers, it gathers to worship. Whatever else we may do here, God edifies us, of course, as we worship, as we sing together, as we instruct one another, as we sing together. All of the things that that we do here, all of the things that we enjoy here are a result of coming to do with a mind to do our purpose in coming, and that is to worship. God is the focus of our service. He has to be. If our focus is anywhere else, we are missing it. If our worship, if our service, if our purpose is anything other than worshiping God, then we are missing the purpose for which the church is called out and called together. And our worship is to be guided by God himself through his word. Order is to be observed in the church, not the chaos that you see in some places today. 1 Corinthians 14.40 says, Let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. And I think that is one of the things where the, one of the places where the 21st century church is in great need of reformation again today. The church today needs to recognize what we come together for when we meet. To worship God and to worship him as he desires to be worshipped. Not as we think is a good way to worship him. Again, that passage in Deuteronomy 29. You know, these people here are gathered before God at God's call for the purpose of renewing the covenant which binds the people to God for the purpose of establishing them in that covenant and establishing them, as verse 13 said, as God's own people. And He is their covenant God. Here here they hear of God's deeds and His promises and His love and of His delivering them from their bondage. As they met in that place and were gathered together, they hear, heard of God's faithfulness in the face of their unfaithfulness. And they were exhorted to faithfulness, warned of the dangers of sin. The focus of everything in that passage is, is God and His works. And beloved congregation, that's the church. Or should be. Should be the same for us as it was for them. Focused on God, grounded in the work of Christ, extolling the mercies of God according to His design. 
And the focus, the high point of worship is God speaking to us through his word. His one-time written revelation, the completed canon of scripture. So that's the upward aspect of the life of the church. Service to God, worship, and it is primary. All the things done in the church are to be done for God's glory according to God's word. The second direction in which the church ministers is the inward direction. That is, the church is a place of nurture. Now, don't get freaked out about that word, even though it has very psychological connotations. But it is in the church, and it is the purpose of the church, to promote the growth of the members of the church. That's nurture. And that's very often not included in discussions of, well, of church growth. Usually I have something very different in mind when we talk about church growth. But the primary area of concern for the growth of the church is the growth of those that God has called into the church. It is seeing growth in faith and knowledge and holiness of those who are here. It is the members of the church increasingly humbling themselves before God and before his word and sacrificing themselves for one another, for the service of Christ's church. And it's such a joy as a pastor to see the people in our congregation grow. And believe me, I love seeing visitors come in. I want us to continue to see visitors. I want us to invite visitors. I want them to come in. I pray that the ones who come in would join with our church and become a part of us here. But it is more a joy for me to see a person in our congregation grow in their faith than it is even to see another seat filled in the pews. Paul said, I am in labor until Christ is formed in you. And this is done as as God works through his word, as it is preached, as it is taught through the, the ministry of the church. God builds us up as the word is preached, as we, as we learn. God builds us up through the sacraments, as we'll receive a little later this morning, as he strengthens our faith, as he nourishes us spiritually through his body and blood. It is done as members spur one another on to good works. Through that means we grow in faith. As you exercise, beloved, your giftedness, for the benefit of others. Whether it's leadership or teaching or hospitality, financial ability, organization, whether it's playing the piano, serving on a committee, using technical skills, volunteering your homes for various things, spending time in prayer for the needs of the church, all of the different ways that God gifts his people when you use those for the good of the congregation, for the good of the other people that are called together as a church with you, as a, con- as a fellowship with you, people grow. It's done as you speak to one another, as you build one another up, as you minister grace to one another, as you bear one another's burdens in prayer through the meeting of needs of one another, 
and as the church ministers uh, more formally and, and generally in that way. It's even done as we lovingly confront one another with their sin when that's necessary. In all of these things, the church is like a hospital. And we're all in need of ongoing treatment. And that's the reason for the church. Some people say, I I don't need to join a church. I can just worship God on my own, in my own way. I think, but gee, if if that was true, then, then why did God establish the church? And why does he commend us to function in certain ways within the church? Why does he give responsibilities to the leadership of the church, to the elders of a church, toward the members of the church? And why does he give responsibility to the members of the church, toward the leadership of the church? Why is he building the church? Why does he go to such lengths to provide for the institution and the organization and the organism called the church, which he says is his own spiritual body? And why does he reprove those who forsake joining themselves to it? Again, the church is the place where the gospel is preached, where forgiveness of sins is regularly proclaimed. And we all need to hear that. And we need to hear it over and over and over and over and over. God uses the ministry of the church to to teach us that, to remind us of that, to help us to grow. You know, the church never works independently of the Lord. But it's also true that the Lord has chosen to regularly work through the ministry of the church. It is his institution. It is his body. We are his people. The church is described in Ephesians 5 as having the same relationship with Christ as a wife does to her husband. And it says that Christ gave himself for the church and works within that relationship to make that bride righteous and holy. And that's what God does in the church through the ministry of the church. So the church ministers in an upward direction and an inward direction, and then finally it ministers in an outward direction. You know that God gave his commission to the church. Jesus came and he said to them after his resurrection in Matthew 28, he says, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And the church reaches to to fulfill this commission that we call the Great Commission. First and foremost, through doing something very simple but very powerful, divinely ordained, in fact, and that is through preaching the gospel. You see, everything comes back to that. We, we worship God according to his word. We grow in our faith and grow one another in our faith by applying his word. And we reach out through the preaching of the gospel. The pure gospel, the apostolic gospel, 
That's how Christ is to be presented to the world who needs so desperately to hear him and to believe him. Not with gimmicks, not with theater, not with compromising the message in any way. Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he said to the Romans that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And the preaching of that gospel is the mission of the church. And we do so with the assurance, the blessed assurance, that Christ is with us always. That he is building his church, even to the end of the age. So we serve upward to God, we serve inward to one another, and we serve outward to the world. So there is really just an introduction, really, to the church. But we will have to leave it there today. With a fresh understanding, hopefully, of, of what the church is, the people of God, called by him, gathered by him, preserved by him, through his word and through his spirit. And with a fresh understanding of what the church does, that threefold focus, upward and inward and outward, and all tied to what God has given us in his word. And here we have a challenge for our own church to hold to that pattern that we have seen, to always be checking ourselves that we are living, that we are ministering with all of those things in mind in order that we can be a faithful church of Christ and pleasing to our King and useful to Him in this world. And to that, let us say, Amen. Father, we thank You for the church. We thank You that You, by Your grace, reach out, reach down and bring people. Call people out of of their sin. Call people out of their bondage and call them together. And form them together into the church. The church which is the body of your son. The church which is the people of God. The pillar of the truth. We thank you, Lord, that you have given to us the grace that you pour out so richly. We thank that you have given to us the spirit through which you work in us to perfect us, to make us more and more the church. We pray, Father, that you would help us. We pray that you would continue to teach us about what it means to be the church. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to live every moment of every day of our lives in gratitude that you, by your grace and your grace alone, have made us a part of this great and glorious body of Christ, the church. And we pray all of this in the name of the King and the Head and the Savior of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.